Are you thinking of a career working for the United Nations or its agencies around the world? Is it your dream to serve in your country's foreign ministry, but you don't know where to start? The Center for United Nations Studies at the University of Buckingham in the United Kingdom is now offering a new one-year master's degree program in United Nations and Diplomatic Studies. Applications for fall 2020 and January 2021 are now open. Graduates will gain a firm grounding in diplomacy, international and regional organizations, causes of conflict, and strategies for conflict resolution. They'll also learn about global political communication and have access to mentors with first-hand experience in the UN system, such as Program Director Mark Seddon, a former speechwriter to UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, and Lord Mark Malik brown a former UN Deputy Secretary General. The University of Buckingham is located in a historic English town, close to London, and is a popular choice for students from across the globe. To find out more about the program, click the link in our episode description. At San Francisco, the United Nations Conference on World Security Organization moves ahead. French Foreign Minister Georges Bidot comes to the speaker stand. He summarizes the position of France in relation to peace problems. The year is 1945, San Francisco. Delegates and heads of state are discussing the document that is going to shape international relations for decades to come. Fast forward 75 years later. All right, good afternoon and happy Friday. As for every other day of the week, remember mute your microphones. And if you don't send video, we're going to see the wrong face on the panel. And we don't want that to happen. A global pandemic has forced the organization created at the San Francisco Conference, the United Nations, to negotiate world peace using only a technology the UN's creators never could have imagined, video conference. And the world order hangs in the balance. This is not the Twilight Zone. It's real life, and you're listening to Unscripted. I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion. As the United Nations turned 75 this week, we talked to the elders of global diplomacy and the youth who will inherit that responsibility. On today's very special episode, they all reflect on the events that have shaped the UN and what the post-pandemic world could and should look like. Act 1. From Doom to Zoom. The month after Pearl Harbor in Washington, D.C., the United States convened 26 allies, later would be 44 allies, to sign something called the Declaration by United Nations, which was the birth of the name, which was given to the Alliance to Crush Fascism in Germany and Japan. But it also was a commitment to two other things, the way to operate during the war in a cooperation across borders, And after the war, a commitment to thinking about what was the best way to guarantee international peace and security, but also economic prosperity. Tom Weiss is a leading American academic on the UN, based in New York. He directs the Future United Nations Project, which aims to help the UN development system adapt to new challenges. He's written many books on the organization. A signature on the charter in June of 1945, and eventually the ratification and entry into force 
at the end of October of that year were in some ways a highlight. In fact, I would almost argue the summit of international cooperation and what we would now call global governance. That's the vision Winston Churchill conveyed to an audience at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, in what later became known as his Iron Curtain speech. If we adhere faithfully to the Charter of the United Nations and walk forward in sedate and sober strength, seeking no one's land or treasure, seeking to lay no arbitrary control upon the thoughts of men, If all British moral and material forces and convictions are joined with your own in fraternal association, the high roads of the future will be clear. Not only for us, but for all. Not only for our time, but for a century to come. Stephen Schlesinger is a fellow at the Century Foundation in New York. He wrote Act of Creation, the seminal book on the founding of the UN. The delegates coming together in San Francisco were absolutely determined to make sure that it was not a third world war. And so if you look at the charter of the UN, it's basically formulated to allow this organization to intervene to stop conflicts around the world from spinning out of control. It basically is a security organization. Here's Tom Weiss on the original vision for the UN. In 1945, the UN, in many people's eyes on the street and in many governments' eyes and in foreign ministries, was to be the principal player in terms of international peace and security and eventually other areas of endeavor like education, agriculture, health, etc. Slowly, the Founders' vision for the UN as a security organization was realized and redefined over decades of major world crises that the UN helped to solve, according to Stephen Schlesinger. The first major intervention was in 1950 when the UN intervened to prevent the North Korean invasion of South Korea from being successful. This was the first test of the UN operating as a security organization to prevent the outbreaks of conflicts and in a way that was a test of the UN Charter itself. And the only reason it worked in this particular case in 1950 is that the uh, communist country of the Soviet Union was not operating as a member of the council at the time the resolution was adopted. The Soviet Union had boycotted the Security Council to protest the exclusion of communist China in favor of Taiwanese China in the council. But for most of the Cold War, the council was relatively ineffective because of tensions between the United States and what was then the Soviet Union. But when major crises erupted, sometimes the stars aligned and the UN could step in and fulfill its original purpose. The one exception during this period of deadlock on the Security Council, where the UN really couldn't act as its founders wished it would, which was to be a enforcement mechanism to stop wars from breaking out, was in the case of the Suez Crisis, when the Egyptian government seized the Suez Canal and the British and the French and the Israelis fought a battle to try to reclaim possession of the canal. And what happened is that the UN 
with the backing of the U.S. government, prevailed upon the powers that were involved in this fight to come to a ceasefire agreement. And the way the U.N. came up with its solution was to suggest the creation of something called peacekeeping forces. These are forces that would be from lots of different countries, but they would wear the helmets of the U.N., and they would enforce the line, demarcation line between Egypt and the rest of these countries. And that's how peacekeeping was invented. But ground conflicts weren't the only thing the UN had to worry about. The threat of nuclear war was always looming. And luckily for us, when the world came close to nuclear annihilation, UN Secretary General Yu Thant helped walk us back from the edge. In 1962, probably the greatest crisis ever in the history of the world came to being, which was the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Soviet Union had snuck in missiles, apparently loaded with atomic weaponry, into Cuba, and the U.S. government, through surveillance, found out this was going on. And the question was whether the U.S. embargo around the island of Cuba would be used to shoot out, shoot down shipments being brought in from Russia. And that could have then led to the outbreak of a nuclear war. So at this point, the Soviet Union and the United States presented their positions at the council in which they blamed obviously each other in order to sway world public opinion. And the ships from Russia were getting closer. And you thought it was then the UN Secretary General agreed to be the kind of negotiator between the two great powers. And it was his role which proved to be crucial because he, he managed to help lower the tensions on both sides by opening communication and eventually help bring about a settlement in which the Russians agreed to take their missiles out in exchange for a pledge by the United States that it would not invade Cuba. The UN also accepted the role of making sure those missiles got out of Cuba by uh, monitoring their um, removal. In the end, Fidel Castro, then head of Cuba, refused to have the UN play that final role, and the U.S. itself monitored the um, removal of the missiles. And the UN continued to play a critical role in preserving peace and security even after the Cold War. By 1991, the gridlock that defined the UN Security Council for most of its history dissipated when a new Russian ambassador, Yuli Vorontsov, arrived in New York after the Soviet Union dissolved. Well, in 1991, the dictator of Iraq invaded the neighboring country of Kuwait, and the crisis was then brought to the UN Security Council for resolution. For the first time, the five permanent members, China, the United States, Russia, Great Britain, and France, were able to operate as a unit together in endorsing UN intervention to take to prevent the Iraqis from taking over Kuwait. Why was this important? Because back in 1945, when the UN was first set up, the founding fathers of that organization were absolutely determined to make sure that the Security Council would act in this kind of flagrant invasion or conflict of one power against another to prevent the war from spreading around the globe. And here in 1991, for the first time, literally since the Korean War, the UN operated 
as the founding fathers wished it to do. And that was a great success. And it proved the value of the UN as a security organization. But a lot has changed since 1991. Russia has experienced renewed strength on the council and globally, and found an ally in communist China. Plus, the balance of power in the world doesn't look the same as it did in 1945. And some countries have continuously argued it's time to update the council to better reflect the spirit of the founders' vision. Well, I think there's a legitimacy to the argument of these major new powers like Germany, Brazil, India, Japan, that they should, because of their wealth and military prowess, should be represented in a more permanent basis on the Security Council. Unfortunately, in my view, it's not going to happen, at least not going to happen in my lifetime. And those five countries, France, the Soviet Union at that time, China, Great Britain, and the United States, are unwilling and have shown unwillingness to give up their rather eminent position with the veto and the permanent position and membership on the council. But it's an unfortunate situation because these countries tend to block each other in terms of the council acting, and this makes the council far less effective within the UN and within the outside world. And security threats aren't the only challenge facing the UN today. Here's Tom Weiss again. The United Nations simply cannot be everything. It cannot keep every member state happy all of the time, and it can't be operational in every country for every kinds of activity. There has to be some tough questions asked, and I suspect as this recession, depression continues, that lots of other countries besides the United States pull back on various kinds of funding. And so it seems to me that the leadership has to ask some tough questions about what only the UN can do or the UN can do better than intergovernmental organizations, non-governmental organizations, or regional organizations, and focus its efforts there. We'll be right back. Unscripted is supported by Fordham University's Master of Science in Humanitarian Studies, an innovative program dedicated exclusively to the theory and practice of international humanitarian response. Built on social justice values and humanitarian principles, this 30-credit graduate program will prepare you with the skills you need to launch or advance your career in humanitarian action. Evening and online classes are offered at Fordham's Rose Hill Campus in the Bronx, New York, as well as at the Lincoln Center Campus, located in Midtown Manhattan. Applications for fall 2020 are being accepted on a rolling basis. For more information, visit fordham.edu slash mshs. Now back to the show. Act two, the elders reflect on the UN's past and future. My co-host Stephanie Filion has more. Some of these elders, former UN officials, politicians, and diplomats, have witnessed the Vietnam War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the Gulf Wars. They have the political and international experience, and now we ask them to reflect on it. We talk to elders from all around the world, from Singapore to the United States, from China to the United Kingdom, to talk about their hope for the future. 
But first, let's see what the UN is doing for its 75th anniversary. So my name is Fabrizio Hochschild and I'm a long-serving UN staff member. I've worked for 30 plus years in the United Nations and now I'm working as a special advisor to the Secretary General with responsibilities on leading a team to mark the 75th anniversary by a global listening tour. Those conversations in person have become much more difficult and impossible. In the first couple of months of the year, we were able to have a few conversations, including with the Secretary General and the Deputy Secretary General, but we've had to switch everything online and to do everything digitally. And then also, obviously, COVID is very much on people's minds. So we've had to change the content of our initiative to include concerns and hopes specifically related to COVID. Fabrizio Aschild is going to be back on the show later with what he's heard so far from people all around the world. But we also wanted to have our very own survey, starting with the elders who have seen the UN grow and change. But the elders is also an organization of global dignitaries. And we're going to start with an official member of the elders, somebody who doesn't really need an introduction. But just in case, Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland and also former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. I'm Mary Robinson. I'm currently chair of the elders and we have brought out a report in strong defense of multilateralism because we feel that's really important. I think it's good to mark the 75th anniversary at a time when somehow there's been a break from the business as usual, uh, which many people feel is a disruption that we have to go back to business as usual. And I'm saying no, and the elders are saying no. We have to, as the UN says, build back better to a way forward that is inclusive, that is um, for green uh, economy and green jobs, but also for living with nature with nature-based solutions, uh, preserving 30% of the land and 30% of the oceans so that we ensure that we have a biodiversity for the future. I have a sense that there is awakening globally to what it is to be human. We've all been locked down in our homes. We've had time to understand the importance of relationships in the home. And of course, that in itself is not fair if you're in an abusive household. It's not fair that children out of school mean that many girls around the world taken out of school will be forced into early child marriage. But still, I have a sense that this is a time when we have been wakened to the idea of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And dignity is at the heart of Black Lives Matter. It's at the heart of the way in which uh, women have come out for gender equality. From Ireland, let's go to the UK. That's where Sir Richard Jolly is from. And I just stop you. I'm from the UK, but having had 20 years of my life in the UN, I treat myself as a citizen of the world. Sir Richard served as an Assistant Secretary General, as well as at UNICEF and UNDP. He also worked on the City University of New York UN Intellectual History Project. He sees the UN not through the lens of the Security Council like many, but through its many agencies and the impact they have on the ground. The one everyone quotes, and it's highly relevant at the moment of the time of the COVID-19 virus, 
was eradicating smallpox from the face of this earth. But the key point was that it cost $300 million for the whole. What at that time, 1966, could you buy with $300 million? Three fighter bomber aircraft. That's pretty good. If I'm allowed to make two other points about UN achievements, one was when UNICEF in 1980s adopted the goal of bringing down child deaths at the time when 15 million under five children were dying every year. And we focused over the 1980s on promoting immunization, oral rehydration, regular weighing of children and so forth. And by 1990, eight years later, the number of child deaths had come down from 15 to 12 million, three million children saved over that period. Since then, it's come down to six million. Looking into the future, Sir Jolly, who's an economist, think this pandemic is a lesson for countries to reconsider their spending. In military security, countries spend lots of money every year on their militaries, whether or not they're engaged in fighting. On average, in many countries, spending 2% or so of GNP. We should be concerned, as the UN has led, with the concept of human security, not military security to protect against invasions across boundaries, but human security to protect people against a whole range of threats, such as viruses, such as gender insecurity in the home, such as all sorts of, well, the climate change and so forth. And yet we don't think in terms of prevention And we certainly don't spend 2% of our GNP each year on such prevention. Now, let's go to Singapore. My name is Kishwa Mabubani. I'm now a distinguished fellow at the Asia Research Institute at the National University of Singapore. But I served twice as Singapore's ambassador to the UN from 84 to 89 and 98 to 2004 when Singapore was also a member of the Security Council in 2001-2002. The 21st century will be the Asian century, and it will be a natural return because from the year 1 to the year 1800, for 1800 after the last 2,000 years, the two largest economies of the world were always those of China and India. So the last 200 years of Western domination of world history have been a major historical aberration. All aberrations come to a natural end. So we will see the Asian century again. And if the Asians become the most successful societies in the world, then they actually have a greater vested interest in a world order led by the United Nations. And I predict that the Asian countries will become the biggest supporters of the United Nations in the 21st century. It's worth mentioning that Professor Mabubani is the author of a recent book called Has China Won? So, has China won? There is absolutely no doubt that in the next two decades, the major force driving global geopolitics will be the geopolitical contest between the United States and China. That's a given. And the question is how we manage the world 
when such a geopolitical contest breaks out. So the goal of my book, Has China Won, is actually to try to persuade the United States and persuade China that they would actually be better off avoiding this geopolitical contest. And instead, since we all live today in an imperiled world where you have challenges like COVID-19 and global warming, the US and China should be working together with each other. To take this China-US tension one step further, let's go to the United States to see what our American elder thinks. My name is Carol Bellamy. I live in New York City. I've been in New York City my whole life. I first became involved with the United Nations when I was lucky to become selected as the executive director of UNICEF. I served for 10 years from 1995 to 2005. And after that, I've worked in conjunction with a variety of other activities associated with the UN, the Global Partnership for Education, and now the Global Community Engagement and Resilience Fund. I think the UN needs to do what it does well, even better. And my view is that relationship will improve. It's a seesaw, depending on the leadership or the presumed leadership of the US at any one time. I'd spend less time worrying about that and more concerned about the role of the UN in recreating the new post-COVID, post-pandemic, multilateral system in the world today. And I think in the long run, that will benefit the US, it will benefit others, it will be a place that the US will wish to re-engage again, if not now, but certainly in the future. She nevertheless believes that the UN's accomplishments should be celebrated 75 years in. Oh, I think the UN's development and humanitarian efforts are to be celebrated globally and over and over. That doesn't mean that there aren't ways to make them even better. But unfortunately, I think the world sees too often the weak part of the UN, which in my view is the Security Council, and fails to fully appreciate the extraordinary 800-pound gorilla of the UN, which is its development and humanitarian capacity. So everything from obviously UNICEF, but to WHO, to the World Food Program, to the Refugee Agency, to the Commission on Human Rights. That engagement of the UN globally, in my view, has transformed the world. Now, after the US, let's go to China, where Professor Justin Ifu Lin lives. My name is Justin Ifu Lin. I am professor and the dean of the Institute of New Structural Economics at Peking University. I was formerly the chief economist and a senior vice president of the World Bank. We need to work together. We need to share the information and we need to cooperate. We need to support each other. And we need to have a platform. We need to have a leadership for doing that. UN certainly is the institution that being created for that purpose. And unfortunately, this time, UN seemed to be within the pressure role, but not so effective. We are a developing country. We hope to have a peaceful world, to have a world that work together to meet the challenges that we face. It's important for the further development of China. And so I see that China 
has done nothing more than just to pursue our own development. China contributed to the global fight of poverty. In the past, about half a century, about 70% of global reduction of poverty was contributed by China's development. So I think China played a constructive role. Now, back to the United Kingdom. I'm Edward Mortimer. I'm a citizen of the United Kingdom and um, currently relocated there. Um, but between 1998 and 2006, I was working for the UN in the executive office of the Secretary General as chief speechwriter and from 2001 onwards also director of communications for Secretary General Kofi Annan. In some ways, the fact that it's still there and I mean that people still pay attention to it, and perhaps not as much as one would ideally like, but um, if you compare it to its predecessor, the League of Nations, which really only lasted 20 years, the UN has done well. I mean, I think it would be pretentious to give all the credit to the UN for the fact that we haven't had a third world war yet. Um, but I mean, I think it has, it has played its part. And I'm not sure that part has always been recognized. Mortimer, who is 76, concludes with a hope that I think will resonate well with our next generations of guests, the youth. In any kind of um, reconstruction and recovery after this crisis cannot be a question of simply sort of going back to the world as it was before the crisis. And particularly, we must not assume that because we've got a terrible crisis with this pandemic and its consequences, that you know that's the only one or even the most important one that the world faces. To my mind, climate change remains the biggest challenge for humanity in this century. And I hope that we will take this crisis as a warning and work harder to for forestall the effects of climate change and organize ourselves for a lower carbon future. Whatever recovery there is from this crisis will be a green recovery and that the UN will play a leading role in bringing that about. We'll be right back. Support for Unscripted comes from the Fletcher School at Tufts University, the premier graduate school in the United States for International Affairs. With the world in disarray, nearly every sector faces complex new challenges. The Fletcher School, established during an international crisis and with a dedicated globalist outlook, offers an interdisciplinary approach to international relations. It is committed to training the world's future leaders to be resilient and innovative. The Fletcher School's flagship two-year Master of Arts in Law and Diplomacy combines a rigorous theoretical education with hands-on experience in the field and the classroom. Or, if you're a mid-career professional seeking to enhance your career, the Fletcher School's one-year master's degree program offers a customized curriculum. No matter what 21st century problem you're most passionate about solving, climate change, infectious diseases, conflict resolution, or gender equality, the Fletcher School delivers an excellent education in international affairs. Take your next step at fletcher.tufts.edu. Now, back to the show. Act 3. The Youth Take Up the Charter They are the generation that not only did not witness the signature of the UN Charter, but also none of the Arab-Israeli War or even the Gulf Wars. 
They're the generation of Greta Thunberg, of Malala Yousafzai, and they are the ones who will be affected by the decisions the UN makes today. Here are their voices. In this part of the show, you'll hear from youth in Vietnam, Canada, France, and Benin. They all have one thing in common. They either pay attention to the UN or have been involved with the organization. Some of them are hopeful for the future of the UN. Others are critical of the work of the organization and think things should change. But first, let's go back to Fabrizio Hochschild, the UN's Undersecretary General for UN75, so he can tell us more about the UN's very own survey and how elders and youth think differently. First, we've already heard from about 200,000 people, the vast majority of them under 35, from about 191 countries through our one-minute survey. And I think a number of things are remarkable. First, there aren't huge variations between regions. There's a remarkable level of consistency across regions with regard to some fairly fundamental concerns. First, the dominant concern everywhere is climate change. And that far exceeds concerns around anything else. The second dominant impressive factor is just how much support there is across the world for international cooperation. And I was very surprised that when people were asked to choose what they they saw as the fundamental priority um, from a list of about 12 or 13 priorities um, in the aftermath of COVID, the first choice, unsurprisingly, was universal access to healthcare. I think that we would have predicted against the backdrop of a pandemic. But what was not so predictable is the second priority everybody lists is greater international solidarity. And while the UN is taking some time to listen, one youth from France, Comme Gishigif, told us he was the French envoy at the first UN Youth Climate Summit last September. And he didn't really feel like the UN was listening. It's not because I'm French and never happy, but I did not expect very specific things. Yet uh, I was very disappointed because no one could really speak. Everything was ready made in advance. And in the end, these few hours within the UN installation, we could not share any ideas. I was, yes, really disappointed. And many of my colleagues thought it was kind of youth washing. And uh, I would not go that far because I'm sure the organizers wanted to give a real role to youth, but I think it was a failure. But it's a first step and it's, it's something. So the issue he cares the most about is clearly climate change. No country has uh, advantage to act against climate change alone. So we need this trust. We need this trust to be built by international frameworks. And that's the core role of the UN today yet. I think that now the Paris Agreement has been set up, international institutions will get less and less useful because I don't believe in their capacity to do some financial transfer, for example. I think it's we we lose a lot of time in doing this and a lot of resources in doing this. But it was essential to reach this point. Of course, Kolm Gishigif is hoping that in the aftermath of the pandemic, we will build a greener planet. 
but he's also worried about the state of the world and international cooperation right now. What it will look like, I think, it got very affected by the American decisions, progressive decisions regarding the World Health Organization, of course. And I think this discredit is spreading a bit worldwide. From France, we're off to Vietnam. Yes, I am in Hanoi right now. I graduated last year. I was working in the U.S. for a little bit, and then the pandemic hit, so I was like, okay, time to go home. <laughs> That's the voice of Yen Ba Vu, who is 23 years old and from Vietnam. She studied law and history in France and in the United States. Well, I think overall, the UN has been a force for good. I think it's a accomplishment of more lateral politics that was impossible to imagine like a century ago. So I think it's really cool that something like this, which has no historical precedent to me, exists in the world we live in today, even though it has its limitation given the current state of like world politics. As a Vietnamese person, I would think that the interventions in which the UN has helped East Asia a lot are more in domains of culture and health and the more technical things that people don't politicize or talk about as much. For example, my grandfather used to be an infectious disease doctor in Vietnam, and over the last like few decades, with UN funding from the WHO, there was a lot of improvement in terms of health. So I feel like it's more like those day-to-day intervention for me that I think the UN did a really good job in Asia for. But her perspective on the UN differs greatly from a Western perspective. So it seemed like, to me, the most salient part that East Asia plays in the UN is through China, which in reality just reflects to me like the larger state of geopolitics in the region, which is very complicated. Lots of antagonism within East Asia itself between the different countries. And despite her mixed views on the UN, she is still hopeful it'll stay relevant in the future. I think what it will look like and what it should look like is the opposite. (laughs) I think what the UN should look like is a place where the principles of multilateral cooperation and people where people add in good faith. Um, Like we think about what sort of like intervention we authorize. We don't use it as like a playground for our own national interest. And we really think of ourselves as a community around the world beyond like the idea of nation states. That's what I hope for, but I think that's going to be a long time, especially after the pandemic. I think it also illustrates the importance of being more transparent about what happens in each individual member state and the need to cooperate. Because, for example, when a pandemic, well, this time it came out of China, but next time it might come out of another poor country in a tropical area. From Vietnam, we'll go to Florida, United States, where our youth voice representing Africa is now located. She's originally from Benin, a small francophone country in West Africa. I'm I'm Joanne Bewa, and I'm a medical doctor and a public health researcher. My research is focused on women's reproductive health, but I'm also an activist because for the past 10 years, I've been involved in advocating for women's health, but also youth participation uh, in policy level as well. And on top of all that, she holds the role of UN leader for the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. So I think how can country really take this pandemic as an opportunity to rebuild the world? We will need to build on both social environment and economic recovery. And I used to say that we need to build on the four S. We need to build on system. We need to build on our strength. We need to build on synergy and sustainability. What do I mean? Systems in the way that we need to build stronger 
and more resilient health systems, but also economic systems. Talking about strength, we saw the power that research, uh, that data has. We saw the power that science has. And myself as a researcher, I can see the role that, you know, scientific research is accomplishing right now that the world is disrupting. But we also wanted to know how she thinks the UN could work best with Africa and the African Union. The Security Council's agenda is heavily focused on Africa, and the role of the UN on the continent is undeniable. But in terms of alignment, you know, the UN, all countries has committed to the Sustainable Development Goals, which are our overarching agenda for development from 2015 to 2030. And in Africa, we also have the Agenda 2063, which is also the overarching agenda for the development of the continent. So I kind of see a lot of good alignment and overlapping in terms of priorities. And if we can make sure that those alignment and priorities for African countries also remain you know, aligned with the SDGs or vice versa, I think the collaboration will definitely go by improving. Now let's head up north to Canada to talk with Sophie Arsenal. I'm currently based in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. I'm currently a student at McGill University. She was invited to the UN in 2019 to deliver a speech on behalf of Canada at the Youth Climate Change Summit. The issues she cares the most about are maternal and child health. I do realize more and more the, the different flaws of the, the multilateral organizations within the United Nations and the, the different ways that that history has repeated itself, unfortunately. And so as much as I do respect the United Nations and as much as I, I hope to one day work with them, I was absolutely pleased with my experience but have over time found quite a disappointment in the organization's history. She came back relatively happy from her trip to New York, but also with a clearer idea of what she wants to do with her experience at the UN. I feel that as much as diplomatic roles within the United Nations hold such an important influence for myself, I recognize myself more in a position of humanitarian aid, specifically in terms of sexual, reproductive, maternal and child health. And so I've over time recognize that as much as I do respect the United Nations and want to pursue their different missions and to work to promote the sustainable development goals and the foundation of the organization, I myself need to be a little bit more on the field and implementing those programs in a way that that doesn't necessarily promote neoliberal thought and mentality. While the elders and the youth may not agree on how useful the United Nations is, they all support the institution and its ideals. But as the UN is facing a strong populism wave and a pandemic at the same time, its future is uncertain. Will the UN make it to 100? The rest of the planet in terms of America first or Brazil first or Russia first or China first or whatever it is amounts to trying to rely once again only on national resources. So it seems to me that, while I'm not going to make any prediction about the United Nations, that this pandemic sort of shakes further the foundations that have already been weakened over the last 75 years for international organizations. It's at the heart of 
the UN, starting with the words, we the peoples, uh, we the peoples 75 years ago made a step forward in understanding our common humanity through the UN system. And now at the 75th anniversary, we have to renew and greatly strengthen that sense and take our responsibility as citizens of the world. Whether it's through a smaller UN, a different security council, or a new hegemon, it remains to be seen if the future of the UN will fulfill its main mandate, avoid a third world war. If the international reaction to the pandemic was perceived by some as a wartime challenge, so far the inaction of some UN bodies also meant that the UN served as a platform to discuss and avoid direct confrontation around the world. We'll see how long that lasts. But for now, many agree that the UN's biggest accomplishment is the relative peace that has marked the world since its creation. That's it for our show. We want to thank everyone who agreed to take part in this episode. And if you want to know more about them and their work, look at the episode description. We added more information there. We'd also like to thank Barbara Corset for her help. This episode was co-produced by me, Casey Candela, and Stephanie Filion, and reported by Leontine Galois for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leimbach is our editor. Laura Kirkpatrick provided social media expertise with the help of Allison Lecce. AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. The archival sound you heard comes from the United States National Archive. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And Pass Blue is covering the important news, from women's rights to human rights to the Trump effect on the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to passblue.com. Pass Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, The New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Pass Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends. <laughs>